Our sermon text today is from 1 Samuel. It's in chapter 8. You can find this uh, in the Pew Bible in front of you on page 216. 216. We're going through this series on 1 and 2 Samuel about the kingdom of God and how he establishes it among his people. And today's story is one of the keys to understanding the whole thing because the kingship in Israel did not begin uh, with a very positive uh, first step. It was a negative first step that Israel made to demand a king from God. Now, does it ever go well when we demand anything from God? Uh, no. We, we do it all, but it does not go well. And so let's look together at this story starting in verse 1. When Samuel became old, he made judges uh, of his sons over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you. But they have rejected me from being king over them, according to all the deeds that they have done from the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and shall show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people whom were asking him for a king. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to, his, to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to work. He will take the tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you on that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we may also be like all the nations. And that our king may judge us and go about before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. 
Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. Well, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Amen? Amen. At any given time, you can go and, and look around the news and find somewhere in the world, at any time, somewhere in the world where there is a coup going on. Some kind of uprising or civil unrest uh, all around the world. It seems like we as human beings are nothing if we are not restless and desiring always for different things and better things. Especially when we're talking about the government that is put over us. But if you think about it, and, and I'm no expert in the history of coups, but from what I do know, uh, hardly ever does a coup actually end up favorable to the people who started it. Uh, the ones that I know about in history and the ones going on in the world right now, they're not going so well. In fact, usually people end up worse off afterwards than they were before. Well, that's what we see in the story today. This is a key moment in the history of Israel, a very key moment, maybe one of the most key moments uh, Samuel has gotten old. This story takes place many years after the one we looked at last week. Last week, Samuel was a young leader who was starting a revival movement and, and welcoming the ark back into the land of Israel with great repentance. Now Samuel's an old man, and he's appointed his sons to take his place as judges. And his sons are not cut out of the same cloth. They're not like him. And so the people are restless. And they come to Samuel demanding a change of government. Now you have to hand it to them. Their coup is not a violent one. They don't pick up weapons. That's a good thing. They simply come with their voices and their numbers. But God makes very clear. It is a coup. And the issue this morning is not that they want Samuel's sons replaced. That's a minor issue. Here's the issue. They want God replaced as their king. And this gives us a window, I think, into our own hearts and lives. When you hear in the Bible that God is Lord, when you hear that God is king and you should bow before him and serve him with all that you are and have, how do you respond? Is it any different than the way that the Israelites responded in Samuel's day? Let's take a look at the bulletin, and uh, I want to show you this story in three headings this morning. If you'll look there, in verses 1 to 7, we see that there is a heavenly king. There's a king above all kings. Secondly, we're going to see that there is a rejected king. This king is rejected by the people in verses 8 to 9. And then lastly, in verses 10 to 22... God is a giving king, the giving king, who is merciful to his people in spite of their attempted coup. All right, first of all, let's look at the heavenly king in verses 1 to 7. We noted the reason why Israel was coming to ask for a different government. Now, you look at verses 1 to 3, and you evaluate, were Israel, was Israel justified in asking for a change of government in terms of Samuel's sons. What do you think? I think so. After all, it says in verse 3 that his sons were all too much like Eli's sons. Remember them? 
Now, it doesn't say they were as bad as Eli's sons, and I don't think they probably were that bad, but they were bad enough to merit this demerit. Uh, They turned aside after personal gain. And isn't this a constant temptation for those in power? Isn't this right? When people become powerful, when they get influence, they want to use that influence often for themselves rather than using it for the people whom they are supposed to be actually serving. A leader, according to the Bible, is a servant of God and a servant of God's people. But here they tried to get rich off of it. They took bribes. When people came for their court cases, they accepted money in exchange for rulings in their favor. They perverted justice. And God agrees with this assessment. God hates perverted justice, wherever it is. In fact, he thinks perverted justice is not justice at all. And anytime leaders of men pervert justice, God is against them. And God works to bring down leaders who are perverting justice and to raise up new ones who will establish justice again. Okay, none of that's at issue. The Israelites aren't bad for thinking this is a bad situation that needs to be changed. Here's where it goes awry in verses 4 and 5. The elders come together, not a bad thing. They're representing the whole nation. And they come to Samuel and they make an assessment. Your sons are bad news. Therefore, here's what we want you to do. Here's our demand. Appoint a king to judge us like all the nations. Give us a king like everybody else has, a strong man who has strong weapons, a strong army, who can represent us, fight our battles, go out before us, and be glorious in his wealth and in his court. Give us that kind of king. That's going to be our solution to the perversion of justice by your sons. Now, what's wrong with that? Well, here's what's wrong with it. They are looking at a human problem, right? A problem that is a result of human corruption. Here's people perverting justice because they're sinners, and they're, they're thinking that just simply replacing those humans with another human is going to solve that problem. Is it going to solve that problem? Not for the long haul, not forever it's not going to solve that problem. Israel's issue is they are looking for the solution to human problems from more humans. Just give me a bigger and better model, Samuel. Your sons aren't cutting it. Give me another one and another one and another one. That's the way we are. This is the reason why coup attempts are so regular. This is the reason why we all fight each other over politics. This is the reason why we are anxious about just about everything we're anxious about, if we're honest. It's because we think the solution is just around the next river bend. If I just get the bigger and better upgraded thing or person then I'll have it. The problem will be solved. What this ignores is that there is a God in heaven. And that, my friends, is a big thing to ignore. 
Notice the difference between the elders of Israel and Samuel. What does Samuel do throughout the story that the elders don't do? He prays. I mean, it says it right there. If you look at uh, verse 6, right after they made their demand, it says, Samuel prayed to the Lord. I love the description of his prayer that comes at verse 21. It's one of the most dear descriptions of prayer, I think, in the whole Bible. Where it says, Samuel, when he heard the words of the people, repeated them in the ears of the Lord. What a description of prayer that is, right? To repeat the issues of our hearts, to repeat the worries and fears and troubles that we have in the ears of Yahweh. It's as if God has lent us his ears. He's given us access to his ears. And he wants us to pour out what's in our heart into those ears because he wants to hear us. He is a good king. He rules us not just in our bodies the way that human governors do, but he rules us in our bodies and our souls, and he provides for both. And so when we're in trouble, it should not be the second or third or last resort to pour our needs into the ears of God. It should be our first resort if we're truly understanding the sovereignty of God well. Israel was not. Israel instead just wanted to trade in the boys for a better boy, Saul. Now let me give you an illustration that might help you get your mind around this. I know a guy, in fact I'm very close to this guy, very close, but I'm not going to name him so that he doesn't get embarrassed by this story, okay? He's out working in his yard, trimming his hedges. I told you about this guy a couple of weeks ago trimming his hedges. Do you remember who it was? Okay, think about that. He uses a plug-in hedger. A while back, he was hedging, and he was getting going so fast, so much momentum. Oh, yeah, it was glorious. And then all of a sudden, the cord got in the way of the hedger and zip, cut it right in half. Do you know what he did? He was upset, but he immediately went to Ace Hardware, and he bought another cord to finish his job, and this time he decided, I'm going to buy a thicker cord, thicker, and he did. He bought the sort of medium thickness of cords, and he went out, and he was hedging. He finished the job. A couple weeks later, a few weeks later, he was doing it again, and guess what? He cut that cord. Do you know what he did? He got even madder, went to Home Depot this time because it was cheaper, and he got the thickest extension cord you can get. Brought it back home, finished trimming. A couple months later, he's trimming again. Guess what happened? Zip! Three times. Now, you see why I'm not naming this person. It's an embarrassing story. What should this person have done? Slow down. Uh, how about instead of just thinking a bigger and better cord will solve the problem, how about thinking it's you that's the problem? Uh, keep the cord out of the way of the blades. Genius, right? But he didn't do that. Instead, in those moments, he thought, you know, I'll solve it by putting something thicker in the way 
so that my lack of care doesn't have the same effect. That is an illustration of what Israel is doing. That is an illustration and a window into our hearts spiritually. If I could just get the right circumstances, the right possessions, the right relationships, whatever it happens to be, it probably isn't a monarchy that we are hungry for today in America like they were. But we're hungry for stuff nonetheless, aren't we? Money, retirement uh, you know, accounts, health care, uh, presidents, market forces, economy changes, whatever it is. We seek those things as if they can give us what we're looking for while ignoring that above and beyond those, those things, actually the giver of those things is really real. And he is king, a benevolent, gracious, and all-powerful king above all kings whose ears are open to hear our prayers. Listen to the way uh, one uh, group of writers summarize the teaching of the Bible about God the King. It says God is a spirit. That makes him different than other kings who have flesh and blood. He's a spirit in and of himself infinite in being, glory, blessedness, and perfection. All sufficient. Eternal, unchangeable, incomprehensible, everywhere present, almighty, knowing all things, most wise, most holy, most just, most gracious, most merciful, long-suffering, and abundant in goodness and truth. Now you put that up against any king of your own making. Right? You put the ear of that king against the ear of your replacement king, whatever it is, and you compare and contrast. You see, we have a God in heaven, a God who rules us body and soul, a God who's able to see even into the deepest parts of our lives and hearts. He knows our needs before we ask him. And so his crown rights are the right to our praise, the right to our thanksgiving, the right to our prayer and dependence, the right to our obedience. And Israel here is making the fatal mistake that every single human being makes. Instead of recognizing the God above all gods, we keep ourselves on the horizontal plane. Human solutions for human problems. Vertical, what is that? That is irrelevant. I can't see it. I don't even want to think about it. It's too hard to think about. Just give me human solutions. Anybody relate? There is a heavenly king. Now, secondly, I want you to see the rejected king. In verses 8 and 9, and then in verses 19 and 20, you get something, I think, that is very sobering and maybe even, well, it's terrifying, really. Because you get, in verses 8 and 9, God's view of what Israel is doing in this situation. And then in verse 19 and 20, you're getting Israel's view of what they're doing in the situation. And the contrast could not be any greater. Israel has its idea of why it is asking for a king. 
But then God has his idea of why they're asking, and they're very different. And we need to understand this because this is the key to understanding so much in our lives. First, there's God's idea. In verses 8 and 9, God says it simply, You are forsaking me. The fact that you didn't pray, the fact that you didn't even think about me in your solution means you're forsaking me. You're turning your back. How personal. You're serving and giving yourself to other gods, he says. In fact, you're doing what your fathers did before you. All the way from the day that I brought you out of Egypt to this very day, God says, you have been from time to time always going after other saviors and other lords and acting as if I'm not enough. You're doing it again. Later, the prophet Hosea talks about this day and he says, On that day, I gave you a king in my anger. I gave you a king in my wrath. Why was God angry? Hosea explains, because God's people were meant to be his bride. That's how personal it is, right? This is not just a business transaction. We are the bride of Christ, the bride of God. And as his bride, we have had many affairs. We have been spiritual adulterers. Every time that we try to replace the one true king with the little lowercase k kings and queens of our lives and of our world. God sees it as personal, and he sees it as an all-out affront, treachery, a coup. Now, look at how Israel saw it in verses 19 and 20. This is scary because it says Israel refused to hear the voice of Samuel. They said, no, but there shall be a king over us. Verse 20, they do not next say, we want a king because we hate God. They don't say that. In fact, they probably didn't even think it. This is how sin works, right? We don't ever, hardly ever think, well, I just hate God and I don't want to think about him and he's a drag. Instead, here's what we do. We want a king over us, verse 20, so that we may also be like all the other nations around us. So we can fit in. So we can keep up with the Joneses. They have kings that judge them. We want king to judge us. They have a king who goes out before them with pomp and circumstance. We want that too. They have a king that fights their battles. Oh, yes, sign me up. I want that. I want to be like everybody else. Innocent, right? This is your child coming to you saying, but mom, everybody else has it. All my friends have one. All my friends do that thing. All my friends go to that place. All my friends are going to be there. Everybody's doing it. Mom, please. That's our heart. We are able to rationalize the most treacherous acts against God. We get real mad when people violate our rights. But who is there to get mad when people violate God's crown rights? That's what we're doing. That's what Israel was doing. God, we just want to be like everybody else. Now, why weren't they like everybody else? 
set apart with holiness. Uh, this, I mean, it wasn't that they were not like everybody else because they were being neglected. It was the opposite. They were unlike everybody else because they were being blessed and blessed and blessed and blessed and blessed and blessed and blessed. And, blessed. and yet still they had a desire in their heart just to fit in. We don't want God. We want this. God sees it for what it is. And God sees it in our own hearts. Every time we would rather fit in the world, fit in with the world, rather than be holy as God is holy, we are doing what Israel does. We are judging the things that God calls good to be bad. Meanwhile, God is judging what we call good to be bad. Whose opinion matters more? Jesus Christ said, what men count as good, God abominates. Abominates. Our values do not always line up with God's. I hope you'll hear that. In the modern world, especially when we're so eager and excited about the progress that we as a society have made, we end up thinking that our view of the progress being good has to be God's view, that he has to be up in heaven just clapping us on. Good job. You're making the world a better place. But I would say do not assume that without the warrant of Scripture. God's opinion is not bound by yours. And it ought to be the chief ambition of your life. I want to hear this. This ought to be the main goal of your life. I want to learn what God thinks about me. I want to learn what God thinks about my life, and I want to learn to like what he likes and have the opinion that he has. Israel didn't do that. Israel was in for quite the difficult journey of discovering this. Think about it this way. Even the word holiness, I've been throwing that word around a lot. And I choose that word on purpose because the word holy, as we sang earlier, means that God is absolutely different than anyone else. He's different in his purity. He's different in his power. He's different in every way. He's different. He's set apart. And so when the Bible says, be holy as I am holy, it's saying, don't try to be like everybody else. Don't try to you know, conform to the world. Instead, aim to be like me. Aim to follow my ways. That's what it's talking about. And yet, when we hear the word holy, what do we often think? When I say holiness, what do you think? Well, I think the average person thinks, ugh, holiness, ugh. I, I read this week that the most popular vegetable in America is corn. Over 90% of people love corn. The least popular vegetable in America are turnips. Many people hate turnips. Do you hate turnips? Maybe you do, maybe you don't. When we think about holiness, isn't it often that way? As if God is saying, eat your turnips. And we're like, mm, okay, mm. I've got to. It's good for me. It'll get me to heaven. But there's no joy in it. There's no taste to it. 
In fact, sometimes, this is what I think is Kevin DeYoung who said, we would rather go camping in a tent in the rain for two weeks than be holy as God is holy. That's the kind of way that we think about it. And yet, listen to Scripture. Here's God's opinion in the Psalms. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. In the splendor of holiness, worship His name. Holiness to God is the source of His eternal and everlasting delight. And yet we hear about it and we think, oh, eat your turnips. This shows us how backwards our values are with God's values. And how prone we are to reject God as our king. Just simply because we want to fit in with ourselves or fit in with the world around us. But this story reminds us. What we need more than anything is to learn what God thinks and to seek by his grace to conform to that. And so watch your heart this morning. Where do you most desire to fit in? Everybody's got their own area. Where do you most want to fit in? Think about that area because that's probably going to be your place of greatest temptation. Wherever you're most desiring to keep up and to look the part, it's probably going to be the place you're going to be tested more than any other place at this point. Will you consult the Lord or will you not? Big question. That leads us to our last thing, which is the giving king. How does God respond to all of this? In verses 10 to 22, God is merciful to the people, even though they are determined to get their way. And so God, in verse 10, sends Samuel. Samuel's his trustworthy prophet. And he sends him with a message of warning. He warns the nation about the king that they're just about to pick, about to choose. Did you notice in those verses, in that little sermon that Samuel preaches, what word does he use more than any other? Did you notice that as we read it, verses 11 to 18? What word comes up over and over? Appoint and take. You will appoint and he will take. He will take your sons. He will take your daughters. He will take your fields. He will take your crops. He will take your tithes. He will take, he will take, he will take, he will take. Now, ain't that the truth? Human government, necessary and God-ordained as it is, is always flawed by the human beings who have it in their hands. And usually the way that it gets flawed is this way of taking. People take, people take, people take. People want to feather their own cap to build their own nest rather than serve others. God says, this king that you wanted so bad, he will in fact be like the other nations. You will get what you ask for. But he will be like them in this way. He will take and he will take and he will take. And at the end, you will become his slaves. And then you will cry out, and I will not listen to you. And that is, in fact, what happens. They, they refuse, in verse 19, to hear Samuel's voice. They demand a king. And God says, in verse 21, obey them and give them exactly what they are asking for. And he does Enter Saul, which we're going to start talking about next week. Here is Saul, head and shoulders above the rest. He looks the part. He's got ripped abs. 
Saul is the man. But what does he do? He takes and he takes and he takes until eventually he even takes what belongs only to God. Now you say, wait a minute. You said God is merciful. God is being merciful here. God often gives us the things that we want even when they're not good for us. So as to teach us to want the things that he wanted all along for us. God does often give us things that we ask for that he knows aren't good, but we insist, we insist, and he'll give it to us. But it's in order to teach us the rightness of his way, the better character of his way. And so this is the key to understanding the rest of the book of Samuel, because Saul was given to Israel so that Israel might learn to long for David. And then David was given to Israel that they might learn to long for Solomon. And then Solomon was given that they might learn to long for, well, ultimately for Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one in David's line who would be greater than the other kings because he was also divine. God will let you run your life into dissatisfaction so that you will seek your satisfaction in him alone. And that is mercy. Next time you're disappointed about something in your life, don't think, oh man, think, thank you, Lord. Okay? Seriously. Next time you go to work and you say, I hate this job, say, thank you, Lord, because you're teaching me that my service of you is the real soul-satisfying thing in my life, not this job. Okay? And you can do that next time you don't want to change the diaper or whatever it is. Say, thank you, Lord, for sending me this child who needs to be cleaned up a lot. Because you teach me that my service of you is more important than my job as a parent. Wow. The Lord is merciful. Jesus tells a story about God. It's a surprising story. He says, a man had two sons. The man stands for God. The two sons stand for us. And the younger of the sons comes to the father. Y'all know the story. And he says, Father, give me everything. I want my inheritance and I want it now. Give me now. And the shocking thing is what the father does next. I mean, we're talking about not a 21st century American father. We're talking about a 1st century Near Eastern father. I mean, they were a slight bit more heavy-handed than we like to be. Okay, just put it that way. Fathers back then would not have said, Okay, son, here's the family jewels. Go do what you want to. Here's everything that we have as a family. Go and spend it. And yet the father in Jesus' story did that. He's representing God. He's representing God in stories like this. He's representing God in our everyday lives. God will often allow us to play out our wishes. Remember what happened to the prodigal son. He ended up spending it all. He was in a pigsty. And what did it say? When he came to the end of himself. 
he said, oh, wait a minute. In my father's house, there is this and there is that. And even the servants eat better than I'm eating right now. And oh, if I could just go back and become a servant. Do you see what the, the father did? He allowed the son to have what he wanted, even though it wasn't good for him, so that he would come to the end of himself to seek himself now in his father's care. And Israel is like the prodigal son here. Under Saul, they will end up in the pigsty. And God will deliver to them a king after his own heart in David, who himself is just a faint reflection of the king, our Lord Jesus Christ. Think about Jesus this morning as we close. Think about him as king. Jesus came to exchange himself for us instead of us exchanging ourselves for God. Jesus came as the giving king. Jesus did not and does not take and take and take and take, does he? Jesus Christ gives and gives and gives. He gave his very life for his people on the cross, and he gives us everything else we need besides. He's the giving king. Jesus does not make his people slaves. Instead, he makes us sons. He is not a ruthless tyrant the way the rulers of men can be. He is instead the servant king who was willing to wash our feet, to cleanse us from our sins by his own blood. Jesus is the king of all the nations, not a king like all the nations. Amen. The rulers of this world, whether they're called kings or presidents or whatever they're called, whether it's called your bank account or whether it's called your retirement plan or your identity as a parent, whatever your king is besides the king, Jesus is not like it. He will not take and take. He will not ask much and deliver little. Instead, he asks precious little and delivers much. He asks for faith. He asks for repentance. He asks for dependence. And he gives everlasting life. Wow. Here's the lesson. In all of life's disappointments, in all the times when you feel like, I need a change. Maybe you do need a change. Maybe it's like Israel and you need a change. That's not a bad thing. Don't first go to human solutions. Go to Jesus. Seek a higher change. Seek a change of heart. Seek a change of life. Seek a change of your eternal state with God. And you will discover why the Bible calls Jesus the desire of all the nations. He is the desire of all the nations. Jesus is what you have been longing for even though you didn't know it. And he's what you need even though you didn't want it. The king. The merciful, the giving, the all-knowing, the everywhere present, the long-suffering, the abundant in goodness and truth, the infinite in being, glory, majesty. Wow. The king after God's own heart. Amen.